The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. reading for you this morning from Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, the passage at the very end of the ninth chapter, uniting two things that might not seem totally united, and yet I think there's a thread in it. And the thread of unity is that of about disciples and how disciples are to behave as they follow Christ. This is not a passage presenting salvation in a sense, but outlining what it means to belong to Christ how to do, as Philippians said in our statement of assurance this morning, take hold of the things that have taken hold of us. How do we respond to Jesus? Listen as I read Luke 9, starting at 51 through the end of the chapter. As the time approached for him to be taken up to Jerusalem, Jesus resolutely set out there, And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. The man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. This is God's holy word. About 10 days ago, July 27th, the Reverend Dr. John Stott died at the age of 90 in his native London. There are many of us who feel this as a monumental loss to evangelical Christianity, although we knew it was near. This godly and humble man deprives us with his homegoing of perhaps the finest English language preacher of his generation. We've also lost a first-rank Bible scholar and commentator, and possibly the most widely respected key leader of evangelical Christianity for the last 40 or 50 years. Among his 50 books, Dr. Stott's last one two years ago, written when he was 88, distilled a lifetime of wisdom into a very small volume called The Radical Disciple. 
He explained in the beginning of that book that the word radical comes from the Latin radix for root. And so he was not talking in radical discipleship about fanaticism. But instead, he was talking about bowing before Jesus as Lord in a way that went all the way down into the roots of who you are. That discipleship touches everything you are, everything you say, how you live all the time. Radical discipleship. Now we're looking at a passage in Luke 9 that it appears to me calls for exactly that. I'm going to quote Dr. Stott about radical discipleship. He said, our common way of avoiding radical discipleship, that which goes into the roots of our lives, is to be selective. We choose just those areas of commitment which suit us, and we stay away from areas in which it will be costly to do something. But, he said, because Jesus is the Lord, we have no right to pick and choose areas in which we will submit to his authority or not submit. Luke 9.51 represents, in every scholar's judgment, a departure point in the development of this gospel. It is the end of the Galilean ministry in which Jesus was presenting himself by teaching and healing and miracle working, and the judgment would be formed about who is he. Who he is has been settled to some extent earlier in this chapter, 9 20, when he said to Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter said on the behalf of others, you are Christ, the Christ of God. And immediately Jesus began to reveal his cross, his passion, and what would have to happen as a result of that. And then, as we saw last time, the great event of his transfiguration. So the mystery of who is Jesus, in a sense, has been dealt with, not perhaps to everyone's 100% satisfaction, but with that great declaration of you are the Christ and revealing the cross now, we find something new happening in verse 51 as it says, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Scholars who structure the layout of this gospel would say that the next 10 chapters, some label it the travel narrative. The travel is in one direction to the cross. Now, We're also being told as we go along more and more about what disciples of Jesus do as he goes toward the cross. In fact, Lord willing, next time as we begin chapter 10, we'll see this very clearly. But it's right here as well at the end of chapter 9. Jesus has a path of travel to follow to get to his cross. Disciples have a challenging path to follow as well if they would go with him and walk with him, and they will find that path to be sometimes discouraging or scary and always requiring their fixed determinations to obey him if they are going to be his disciples. The way I'm asking you to see a structure in a briefer message than normal here on a communion Sunday is to look for three R's I'm going to declare about this passage. I'll tell you what they are. Look for the word resolute, the word rejection, and the word reckoning. First of all, look at Jesus' resolute commitment to the cross. Here in verse 51, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He turned on his heel and headed determinedly in a new direction. 
We're reminded of Isaiah 50, verse 7, that speaks about the suffering servant of the Lord. And in a vivid description says, he would set his face like a flint, as if his flesh was not even soft flesh anymore, but, but his, his eyes and his, his whole look was, was set like stone in the direction of the cross. He has already predicted what would happen at that cross, Luke 9.22. He predicted suffering, rejection, death. I'm always fascinated by the question of Jesus as man as well as God. Did did he see every detail? Did Did the Father hold back perhaps from his humanity some of the things that were coming that that he just could not see every detail yet? Or did he know every detail? I can't answer that question for you, but if he did see everything, you think of what was ahead, sinister plotting by those who were supposed to be the spiritual leaders of the nation, betrayal by a friend, Judas, for a bag of coins, whipping until his skin was cut open to the bone, spitting in his face, beating with clubs, nails in his body, We think he must have had some idea of all that. And yet Hebrews 12, 2 gives an interpretive comment saying, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross despising its shame. That's an amazing statement. Sometimes we can steel ourselves to do something difficult or uncomfortable. We really don't want to do it, but we know we ought to. Whatever it is, go to the dentist and get our teeth taken care of. Some people just hate doing that. Hopefully you do it because you don't want the teeth to fall out one day. Well, it says, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. He looked beyond the awful part, the painful part, the complete sacrifice of himself because he saw a grand result at the end of it. Millions and millions of souls won to him redeemed by him. Now, for sake of brevity today, I want to turn this and ask you to to realize that the same determination that took Jesus to his cross in history is his determination today as he would take you as a believer to his cross, there to bow and repent of your sin, embrace him in faith, and then that he would determine to take you the rest of the way to your heavenly reward. You see, our God and Savior doesn't just go to the cross and that joy set before him wasn't simply a possibility that somehow you in your own strength would figure it out someday and and come to him and become his disciple. The gospel of grace says he conducts you to his cross He works in you by his Holy Spirit. He applies to you the awakening of grace and the growth of faith in you that we call sanctification. And every single step of the way to the very end, he is concentrating on the finishing of the task of redemption in your life. Do you really think he would would give himself with such commitment to a task of going to the cross and then say, well, I don't care what happens after I die. That's all up to them. That's not the characteristic we have of Christ in the gospel. We have a characteristic of a true Savior who right now is resolutely determined not to let one of his people slip through his fingers. And he will finish this task that he began to do. 
He who began his good work in you will bring it to completion in the final day of Christ. Secondly, today, the word from resolute was the first one. Rejection is the second. Notice this in verses 53 to 56. It, it seems jarring and maybe doesn't fit exactly, but it's a very relevant word to us. Human rejection of Jesus must be treated with mercy, not contempt. So this is kind of a strange little incident with James and John, two of the inner disciples. They were brothers. They were the ones who had the nickname Sons of Thunder, and they kind of earn it here as their anger flares up. You see, they're rather volatile men, and they demonstrate it. They were self-righteously angry at people who would not receive Christ by faith in Samaritan villages while they were heading towards Jerusalem. Now, you may know a little bit about the ancient animosity of the Samaritans and the Jews. They did not like each other. They did not really have any use for one another. That's certainly in the background here of why and, and it's interesting that they say that they didn't receive him because he was heading for Jerusalem. Jerusalem? We don't have anything to do with people that regard that as an important destination. And James and John think it's their place as disciples to mete out judgment on these people. And they come and say, Lord, should we call fire down on them? Maybe they thought they had power to do that or they were asking him to do it. Now, some of you If you know about the making of the New Testament, there's an interesting little note here, and you may look in the footnote portion of your Bible, and you probably see that added to verses 55 and 56, some versions, some manuscripts include other words that say, you don't know what kind of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. What's that all about? Why is it in the footnote? All that we can best understand is that this is probably an explanatory comment inserted by someone who was copying a manuscript in some early century because only one or two primary streams of manuscripts have that. Most of the streams of manuscripts do not. And that gives us the characteristic that it was an edition of some type. Now, it's a a correct edition in that it interprets probably correctly what Jesus was saying. It isn't adding an error. It just wasn't there in the original writing. The Lord is saying, you are trying to take my wrath upon yourself and exercise what belongs only to me. You know, there's a lot of applications in this, and in fact, the longer I thought about it, there's a whole sermon in this little passage that I just don't have time for today, but here's something we need to hear, because we're like James and John. We find people disagreeing with our faith in this secular society of ours, people vehemently disagreeing, flying off in in directions, glorifying moral choices that are immoral choices in the light of the Bible and have been for centuries in Western civilization, and we say, oh, those awful people. And we heap up our invective upon them, like the fundamentalist group from Kansas that has the, the uh, protests at the, at the military funerals. And I would say just about everybody here would say, what is wrong with those people? What are they doing out there ruining the grief of, of people grieving for a soldier? And grieving, as we remember, as 30 soldiers have lost their lives in Afghanistan this just the other day, 
How dare they go and take their cause and their anger and, and their signs and their name-calling and, and heap that on people that have nothing to do with that just because the U.S. government tolerates something they don't want tolerated? Well, I believe here Jesus is ruling out the violent, destructive, sarcastic responses of his church to our spiritual foes. Now think about this. If this would have been heated, there would have been no crusades in the Middle Ages. Jesus is saying, and actually Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 10, the weapons of our warfare are not worldly weapons. We don't fight angry people by getting angrier. Today's a day of salvation and opportunity, and yes, of course, we are called to hate the lies of immorality and and things that are contrary to the gospel and take a stand against them. But again, we make that separation between hating the sin and being compassionate on the sinner. It is not our place to heap up sarcasm and anger and retribution. I know that this is a place where I have, some of you have not understood me, and maybe you never will, when you come and share with me your latest discoveries or words or editorials that the conservative political folks are saying, and you say, ah, look at that. Look at how he bashed those people. And I'm thinking, is bashing really what we're called to do? This is one of the ways that a lot of the conservative commentators, I I honestly just don't have time for them today. Do I agree with their principles, the stands they take, the immorality, the anti-gospel rhetoric they're speaking against? Yes, I do. But I can't agree with the way they speak, the sarcasm and the bitterness and the name-calling and the caricaturing of people we disagree with. Oh, I've done it. I'm certainly guilty of it. But Jesus is calling us to something else here, and maybe in a year heading for a national election, we need to remember and hear this word. I believe this text is telling us that the only concealed weapon that disciples who travel the road with Jesus are permitted to carry is the weapon of a merciful spirit. Let us hear that, ladies and gentlemen. The third R in our text is maybe the main subject. It's a challenge in verses 57 to 62 that we would reckon up or count on a disciple's first loyalty. Count the cost. Don't join the cause of Christ under false pretenses. He gave this enigmatic reply to a man who made a a wonderful declaration. Lord, you are are wonderful. I want to go with you. I want to be your disciple. I'll go anywhere. You would think Jesus would say, well, sure, come on. But he was saying, wait a minute. I'm not telling you not to come, but reckon first what you're saying. Understand that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests and the Son of God has no place to lay down his head. What was he saying? He was really saying that to be a disciple of his kingdom means to become a homeless person. Oh, ouch, I don't want to be one of those. Sleeping in a cardboard box, never getting a bath, never knowing where the meal's going to come. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about not having your permanent anchorage in this world and its securities. Jesus was saying to this man, I want you to understand what the cost can be. You, like everyone else, 
willing disciple. Make your home, make a nest for yourself in this world. You surround yourself with as much security as your efforts can build up and money in the bank and equity in your home and, you know, get the whole thing as secure as you can make it. And you feel, ah, all right, I'm, I'm making progress. I'm, I'm really building my anchorage. Things are pretty secure. Maybe they're not secure. And, and you're devastatingly worried because they're not secured physically and materially for you. I put you back to a word that Moses said in the psalm of our call to worship this morning. Lord, you have been our dwelling place through all generations. Think about that. What does it mean that God is your dwelling place? What would it mean if Christ was your true dwelling place so that you said, I'm not home anywhere on this earth except in unity with Christ my Savior? Now, there's nothing wrong with owning a home and building up your bank accounts and doing those prudent things. The point is, are they your security? Are they where you dwell? And without them, you have no home. Or is it true that your one and only place and bond of security is in belonging to Christ by the grace of God? I think if disciples would understand that, we'd have a completely different view of stewardship. You would never say, oh my goodness, are you kidding? God wants me to give 10% of my income? Don't be ridiculous. You would not say that. You would learn how to give until it hurts. You would inconvenience yourself and your private comforts for the cause of the kingdom if you had reckoned up a disciple's loyalty. Now, the same thing goes on with these other two people that Jesus has exchanges with here in our text. One man says, I'll, I'll follow you wherever you go, and the other man is invited by Jesus. Follow me. To the first man, or the first man says, let me go first and bury my father. The second man, somewhat similarly, says, let me go back and say goodbye to the family. Neither of those seems like very tough things to ask, right? Certainly Jesus wants them to do respectful things towards their family. Well, practically every commentator believes that the expression, let me go and bury my father, is not what you think it is. His father was not in the funeral home. If his father had died, Jewish burials happened very rapidly. If this man would not have been out on the street talking with Jesus, he would have been with the family at a funeral. Probably what we have here is an expression widely believed that the man was saying, let me go care for my elderly parent until he dies. And when he is gone and I no longer have that obligation, I'll gladly follow you. Now you say, Jesus sounds like he's being very hard. Here's a man who just wants to be a good son. Doesn't the Bible say honor your father and mother? And I say to you, of course it does. And that is exactly the point here. The highest obligation we have by nature, not by discipleship, but by birth in this world, is to be a son, a daughter who would honor parents, or a husband, a wife who would honor the covenant of marriage, or a parent who would do their very best sacrificially for their children. The point is, these are your highest natural callings, but Jesus is saying, higher still than these high callings is your loyalty to me. Now, by 
saying he has a preeminent loyalty even to your family. He's not saying, I expect you to abuse your family or do them harm. And as a matter of fact, most Christians understand that when he is truly being served as Lord, you will become the best son, the best daughter, the best husband, the best wife, the best parent, because you've got your loyalties figured out. But he's saying you must reckon on the fact that the lordship of God in your life takes priority even over the highest natural calling, God-honored calling of family. The fear of God looms greater than reverence due to parents. We do not worship families. We are called to worship our God alone. In closing, I ask the question that hangs over this text, is your hand on the plow of Christian discipleship? Again, we're not talking about salvation. That's the gift of God by grace. We're talking about following once you know Christ, taking hold of that which has taken hold of you. Is your hand on the plow? And is the plow moving forward? I remember so well my experience on my grandfather's farm when I was quite young. and The ability to drive a tractor before I was 10 was really a big deal. By the time I was 11, I was driving the tractor with a plow on it, and my grandfather was most concerned that I plow straight, knowing that most 10 or 11-year-old boys are going to look all over the place, and the tractor's going to go wherever they're looking. He said, take the nose of the tractor, see that tree across the field, keep the nose of the tractor on that tree, and you'll plow straight. Good advice for all of life. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. When we look back, we want to go back. We're more interested in what's behind us than what's in front of us. Looking forward in this context means looking steadfastly at Jesus and obeying him as Lord as our highest loyalty. I'll leave you with this little story, true story. I told it to you many years ago. You probably don't remember, but if you do, you can hear it a second time. A century ago, the turn of the 20th century, William W. Borden was the son and heir of a wealthy Chicago family. He was a gifted young man and ready to take the reins of a large family fortune. He was educated at Yale, did very well there. He went to Princeton Seminary, thinking he was called to the ministry. In fact, at the end of that time, deciding that he was called to a ministry that at that time was an uncommon mission field, ministry to Muslims. A hundred years ago, people said, Muslims, you can't go minister to them. They won't listen to you. But William Borden said, I believe God wants me to go to Egypt and minister to Muslims. And he presented as a gift to his mission board the majority portion of his part of the family fortune, which was $500,000. Doesn't quite sound like a fortune today, but you who do these kinds of equivalencies would know that $500,000 in tax-free days of the early 1900s, or the early 20th century, that is, was worth probably an estimated $10 million today. He gave that to his mission board, sailed for Egypt, William W. Borden lived in Egypt ministering among Muslims who mostly didn't listen to him for one year. And during that year, he contracted meningitis and died. And they found a piece of paper that Borden left among his 
belongings. I think it was stuck in his Bible for others to find, which they assumed he had written as a final word when he understood that he was dying. There, lonely, away from his family, far from America, seemingly in a failed mission. He had no converts to list. And Borden wrote six words on a piece of paper. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. Now, I'm not asking you to go minister to Muslims. I'm not asking you to give away your fortune. But I'm asking whether your discipleship to Jesus Christ goes into the roots, the roots of who you are, so that you bow first to him before you bow in any other direction. And if that's true, then might the epitaph be written of you as well? No reserve, no retreat, no regrets to the glory of God. Our Father, we have done little for you. We serve idols on every side. We would deny it, but we do. We love our incomes. We love our homes. We love our comforts. We love our families. And not all these things are sinful by any means. But you challenge us to see what we love more than you. And in your stern way of dealing with disciples in that day, may we hear your call for us. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.